Good morning. Good morning. It's, it's very good to be here this morning and to worship with y'all here. Um, as, as was uh, stated before, my name is Reagan Malloy. I've met some of you. If, if I haven't yet, I'll try and meet you. I would like to try and meet you after services. Um, but uh, my wife, Mary Catherine, and I, we worship over with the Christians over, over in Jessup at the Walnut Street Congregation. Uh, and I was, I was very uh, uh, humbled and privileged that Brian asked me to, to fill in for him uh, one Sunday while, while he and his, uh, Eve are over, over in Africa. Um, so we've been, been looking forward to coming and worshiping with y'all. Um, it's a, the, the family of God is a wonderful thing um, that we know there are brothers and sisters we love over in Jessup who were doing this morning just what we're doing right now. Um, gathering together to remember the, the death of our Lord and Savior. Um, the fact that he came, he lived, he died for us and rose again so that we could, uh, live with the hope that we talked about in our class this morning. We live with hope because of what he's done for us. And it's just wonderful that there are Christians the, the world over who are doing this at various times today, various time zones. Um, but it's, uh, it's it's good for us to be here to doing this with y'all, and we're grateful for the opportunity to do that. If you want, you can go ahead and turn to Matthew chapter 5. Uh, appreciate John reading that for us earlier in our service. Ma- uh, Matthew chapter 5, we'll begin there in a moment. Um, I also really appreciate the, the song that was led right before uh, the, the lesson here, Ma- uh, Magnify, O oh Magnify. Had it turned to the wrong page. But the, the verses there will... Hopefully, we'll, we'll, if, all, if all goes according to plan, we'll actually tie in very well with the lesson this morning. The idea that God has made us in His glorious image and we ever strive to be like Him. He alone is holy. He alone is righteous. That's what we're going to be talking about this morning. We're going to be talking about righteousness and what it, what it means to truly be righteous as we are called to be. <clears throat> so in Matthew chapter 5, um, you might be looking around at the context there in Matthew 5 and see that we're, we're in the Sermon on the Mount. Um, that great sermon that Jesus preached. And we're really in the introductory part to the Sermon on the Mount. The first uh, several verses, beginning in verse 3, are the Beatitudes, a fairly well-known passage in Scripture. <clears throat> and then again, uh, verse 13, you're the salt of the earth. Verse 14, you're the light of the world. Um, we're, we're possibly familiar with, with some of these phrases that Jesus is using here. We, we, we hear them a good bit from time to time. Um, but I really want to focus this morning <clears throat> as we begin on verses 17 through 20. We'll read those again together right now. Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 17. Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. Whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever keeps and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. So Jesus here really in his uh, kind of the the close of his introduction to the Sermon on the Mount um, he, he makes this statement, uh, kind of a, a, a warning. Uh, he says, don't think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. And, and that begs the question, why would the people, why would the people think that he might have come to abolish the law and the prophets? Why would he have to kind of head this idea off at the past and say, I didn't come to abolish them? <clears throat> well, you think about what the, 
what the law was to the to the Jews, because remember that that's who he's speaking to. This is before the cross. He's speaking to Jews who were God's physical people. And you think about the law, but you especially think, you know, for the last roughly the last four hundred years, there had been no prophets. God had not spoken directly to His people. All they had was the the law and the prophets from, from earlier, what we call the Old Testament. And and during this period of time. Um, the, the sects of the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees had arisen, and they had really built, they had built these hedges around the law. You had God's law over here, but then the, the scribes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they would have, um, added on more laws, if you will. That's at least how they treated them. They may not have called them that, but they treated them as if they were equal to the law of God. They had built these things onto the law, and really between the people and the law, and had bound these things on the people. They had put up these hedges, you know, the idea of teaching as doctrine, the commandments of men. This had, this had arisen and really, um, like over the last several hundred years before Jesus comes into this world, this is kind of what the law had become. Because you have the scribes and the Pharisees, the religious leaders of the time, who are teaching as doctrine, doctrine, the commandments of men. And, what Jesus is about to do as he's about to, to really launch into the meat of what we call the Sermon on the Mount is he is about to just completely deconstruct the pharisaical picture of the law. And really that's what he's going to do for like most of his earthly ministry, but especially here in the Sermon on the Mount, he's going to just really point by point deconstruct the Pharisees' version of the law, the Pharisees' version of righteousness. And so... Before he launches into this, he, he wants his, his, his listeners to understand, listen, I didn't come to abolish the law or the prophets, God's law, the things that God's prophets had said. He said, I didn't come to abolish that. In fact, I came to fulfill that. So he wants them to understand that right off the bat here. He's not coming to abolish it. He has come to fulfill it. And so he sets that record straight. <clears throat> and then we get to verse 20. And verse 20 is really our, our key verse this morning, and it, I, I think it can really be, it can be argued that, you know, verse 20 in Matthew chapter 5 is the thesis statement for this entire Sermon on the Mount. So Matthew 5 and verse 20, Jesus says, For I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. He, he tells his listeners here, your righteousness has to be greater than the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees. And for us reading that today, that makes sense, right? We, we, if, we, if we've read the, the gospel some, we have some sort of an idea of who the scribes and the Pharisees were. And they are, they are the antagonists in the story of the gospel, right? They're, they're the bad guys, if you will. Um, they're the ones who are eventually going to nail Jesus to the cross. And so we, and if we've, if we've read some of Jesus' teachings, we, if we've read some of the Sermon on the Mount, we know how he, he points out their hypocrisy. Um, how they were, they were, um, they were blind guides of the people. So that, that, in my mind at least, maybe it's the same for you, that's kind of the picture I get when I hear about the scribes and the Pharisees, is they, they are hypocrites. They are, are people who are leading God's people astray. They're, they're the ones who killed the Messiah. But you think about the people who are listening to Jesus when he first preached this sermon. The Jews who are listening to him. They would not have viewed the scribes and the Pharisees in this way. They would not have viewed them as the bad guys. In fact, in fact, they would have viewed them as the religious elite, like the best of the best. They're, they're the best Jews that there are. That's who the scribes and the Pharisees are. They're the ones who know the law. They're the ones who teach the law. 
You know, they're the ones that, you know, we see them praying every day on the street corners and we see how holy they are. That's how the, the that's how Jesus' original audience would have viewed the scribes and the Pharisees. You know, if, if you're a Jewish father, you want your daughter to grow up and marry a Pharisee one day. If you're a Jewish mother, you want your son to grow up and be a scribe one day. But then Jesus comes on the scene and he says that, yeah, okay, the scribes and the Pharisees, you have to be better than them. Your righteousness has to surpass their righteousness. And so when his listeners heard this, they probably were thinking, how is that even possible? How can I be better than this scribe over here? How can I be better than this Pharisee over here? They're the best of us. They're the teachers. How can I be better than the teacher of the law? You know, we, we see them doing all of these holy, pious things. How can I do those things better than they can? This was a radical statement that Jesus makes here at, at, in the introduction to his Sermon on the Mount. <clears throat> because in a way, the Pharisees were excellent at law-keeping. You know, when it comes to tithing, you know, they tithe mint, dill, and cumin. They're, they're counting the leaves on their, their herb plants so that they make sure that they give God exactly what he asked. Uh, and so in some ways... It could be argued that they were excellent at law-keeping. But this statement here, that your righteousness has to surpass their righteousness, this statement indicates that righteousness, true righteousness, requires more than than outwardly doing the right thing. And I think about my life sometimes uh, when when I've when I have thought of righteousness before, I think I've I've probably thought of something similar to maybe the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees. You know, I'm I'm going to do the good things and I'm going to not do the bad things, and if I do that, therefore I will be righteous. You know, if if I uh if I keep myself from becoming unclean, you know, that not not in a ritual sense like they would have thought about it, but more metaphorically, I guess you will. If I keep myself from being unclean, if I do good things, then I'm that's what righteousness is, and I am a righteous person. If I do good things and I don't do bad things. But that's kind of what the righteousness of the Pharisees was. And Jesus says we have to do better than that. We have to surpass that kind of righteousness. And so that indicates to me that there is something, there's something more to righteousness than simply rote outward keeping of the law. It involves keeping God's law. Jesus said here, you know, whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. Keeping the law is, is, is a part of righteousness, but it is not the entire thing. There, there, there's something deeper than simply outwardly keeping the law. And that's what Jesus wants us to understand here. So, okay, if we, we, we've talked some about what righteousness is not. It's not, it is not only outwardly keeping the law. So what else is there? What else does, does this righteousness that Jesus is talking about, what else does it entail? What, what, what does righteousness look like that surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees? Well, turn with me to the Old Testament. Let's turn to, to Psalm 50, the 50th Psalm. There, I think, uh, the, the writer, I believe is Asaph, he, I think, is going to clue us in, in onto, into what true righteousness is. Psalm 50, and I want to read verse 6. And the heavens declare his righteousness. That's God's righteousness. And the heavens declare his righteousness, for God himself is judge. What declares God's righteousness 
in Psalm 50 and verse 6? What does Asaph tell us declares the righteousness of God? It's the heavens. It's the heavens. You, know, you look at the sky above us. The sky declares God's righteousness. How does the sky declare God's righteousness? You know, if, if righteousness is only doing good things and not doing bad things, how does the sky declare God's righteousness? The sky doesn't do good things. The sky doesn't not do bad things. The sky is not moral in any sense. It is amoral. It, it is simply there. How does the sky declare God's righteousness? How do the heavens declare God's righteousness? I think to answer this question and to get insight, to, to get that insight into what true righteousness is, just think about what the heavens do. What do the heavens do? If they don't do good things and they don't do bad things, what do the heavens do? Well, they exist, right? And not only do they exist, but they exist as God created them to exist. In short, they do what God created them to do. You know, you, you, you turn back to, to Genesis chapter 1, there in the very beginning, day 2 of creation. Genesis chapter 1 and verse 6, Then God said, Let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. God made the expanse and separated the waters which were below the expanse from the waters which were above the expanse, and it was so. God called the expanse heaven, and there was evening and there was morning, a second day. So God, God, when God created the heavens on day two, he, he created them to serve as this expanse. He, he's separating the waters. He's ordering creation here. Um, and so he creates the heavens. <clears throat> Are the heavens doing something different today than they started doing on day two of creation? I don't think they are. Have the, have the heavens ever done anything different than what they started doing on day two of creation when God put them into existence, when he created them? No, they're, they're, they're not. So the heavens are doing today what they were created to do. <clears throat> God, God set up a specific order of things on day two of creation. He did it on all of the days. We're looking at day two. He set up a specific thing, a specific order of things on day two of creations, and the heavens still uphold that order that he set up. And in this way, they declare God's righteousness, because this is what righteousness is. Righteousness is God's right order. Righteousness is God's right order of things. And when he created this world, he, he just day after day throughout the days of creation, he is ordering things rightly. And, and when those things, when you think about the heavens, and when they do what he created them to do as they are today, they are declaring his righteousness. They are declaring that he is a, a rightly ordering God. He is a right-setting God. So something is righteous when it is ordered in the way that God says it should be ordered. And the rest of creation demonstrates this. We've talked about the heavens. The earth is ordered as God created it to be ordered. Think about the plants and the trees and, and, and all of that. The, the animals are rightly ordered. So the heavens declare God's righteousness. The earth declares God's righteousness. You know, the, the duck-billed platypus declares God's righteousness. Because they're all doing what he created them to do. They're all, they're all doing what he designed them to do in creation. They, they are, they are fitting into the order that God set up. So all of creation demonstrates this. Except for one part. There's one part of creation that doesn't demonstrate God's righteousness. It doesn't demonstrate His right order. And that's me. That's humanity. Humanity does not demonstrate God's righteousness because we don't do what we were created to do. What were we created to do? 
I turned away from Genesis 1. What were we created to do on day 6? Genesis 1 and verse 26, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the sky, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. The purpose of humanity, the, the, the place in which, the place that humanity filled in God's right ordering of things was to bear his image, was to bear his image to the rest of the creation, was to rule the creation as he would rule it, to embody God's character, to embody his divine nature. That was the role that was given to humanity. And that is the role that we fail at. And that is the way in which we are the one part of creation that does not do what God designed it to do. And this is where the scribes and the Pharisees completely missed the boat. Because their righteousness, their righteousness was built around doing pious things in front of other people. They thought that they could, they thought that they could be made holy by perfect law keeping instead of being made holy by embodying the character of God that the law was supposed to drive them to. And instead of recognizing their their own inability to become holy and to become righteous through this law-keeping, and instead of letting that drive them to depend even more on God and on His grace, they wrapped themselves in man-made laws, they brought God's law down to their level, and they called that righteousness. They, they took the 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 right order that God created and, and, and the image they were supposed to bear. And they said, we don't want that. That's too difficult. We're going to create something lesser than that and call that righteousness and teach that to the people. <clears throat> and this, that, that type of, of perverted, cheap righteousness is what Christ is preaching about in the Sermon on the Mount. This, is, this righteousness is not the divine image-bearing righteousness that God created us for. Because when we, when we don't fulfill what we were created to fulfill, when we don't bear his image to the rest of creation, when we, when we don't embody his nature, that is unrighteousness. That is the definition of unrighteousness. If righteousness is being rightly ordered, unrighteousness is being incorrectly ordered. And so when I don't do what I was created to do, I, I am incorrectly ordered, I am unrighteous. And so where does that leave us? What, what, what can be said? What can be done? We, we have, each of us has abdicated our God-given roles and we have each stepped outside of the order that God created us for. So what, you know, it, it makes you want to cry out as they did in Acts 2, men and brethren, what, what can we do? What shall we do? Paul, Paul writes of the remedy for this situation. You turn with me, if you will, to Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5, we'll begin reading in verse 18. <clears throat> Romans 5 verse 18. So then, as through one transgression there resulted condemnation to all men, even so through one act of righteousness there resulted justification of life to all men. For as through the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, even so through the obedience of the one the many will be made righteous. The law came in so that the transgression would increase, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, even so grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So this is the remedy. 
This is the remedy to, to what seems like our hopeless situation. We have abdicated our responsibility. We don't fulfill the role that God created us, created us to fill. That, that began with Adam and Eve in the garden. And just as all men fell there in the garden, not getting into that, the false doctrine is tied to that today, but just as all men began to fall there in the garden, so all could be justified because of the righteousness of one man, the, the singular act of righteousness of one man. So through Christ, we can be made righteous again. We can be rightly ordered in Christ. What good news that is. Just as sin reigned in us, grace will now reign through righteousness. So you remember Matthew chapter 5, 17 through 20 that we read there. How Christ came not to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law. To live, to, to perfectly keep the law and to therefore demonstrate God's character. To perfectly bear God's image before the creation, before humanity, Christ came and he did what none of us have ever done, what none of us will ever do. He perfectly bore God's image. He fulfilled the law and the prophets. He perfectly embodied the divine nature. But Paul here in Romans 5, he speaks of of one act of righteousness that would justify all men. That's referring to something specific. I don't think that's referring to necessarily Christ's entire life. This is referring to to a singular act that justifies all men. Turn turn with me to John chapter 12. Let's look at what that act was that justified all men. John chapter 12, beginning in verse 23. And Jesus answered them, saying, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. He who loves his life loses it, and he who hates his life in this, in this world will keep it to life eternal. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now my soul has become troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Jesus' purpose, the, the, the entire purpose for which he came to this world was so that he could die as a sacrifice for us. And so that in his death, as he took the punishment for our sins, we might be justified before God. And when he, when he did that, when he, when he obeyed his father to go all the way to the cross, all the way to the grave, that act of righteousness justified the many. Because you see, Jesus was perfectly ordered. Jesus was ordered as God wanted him to be ordered, as he was put on this earth to be ordered. Jesus was righteous. And in, and in the culmination of that righteousness, in his death, his burial, and his resurrection, each of us was justified. And so if this is the case, if this is the wonderful remedy to our situation, what is our response? What is our response to this? Well, Paul, Paul doesn't leave us hanging here. If, if we re- continue reading in chapter 6, let's pick up in verse 12 of chapter 6. Paul says, Therefore do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lust, and do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law, but under grace." So we, we have now been justified. Verse 5 of chapter 6 says we've been given newness of life. And so therefore we are not to go on sinning. 
We are not to continue to live outside of the order that God created us for. Instead, we are to present ourselves to God as instruments of righteousness. And I want us to think for a moment about this phrase, instruments of righteousness. What is Paul getting at here when he's talking about an instrument of righteousness? And so when I hear the word instrument, I, I, I automatically think of something like, you know, a guitar or a piano, a, a musical instrument. Um, but I don't think that's what Paul is talking about. I don't think he's talking about a musical instrument. Um, I think he's, he's referring to an instrument more in the, the general, the general definition of the word. You know, an instrument is a tool or an implement that is used usually for a, a specific purpose. Um, you think of a, a surgeon's scalpel is a surgical instrument. You think of, you know, a, a plow is a farming instrument. And I think it's kind of in, in that sense is, is how Paul is using the word instrument here as a, a tool or an implement that has a specific purpose. It's a tool that, when wielded by an expert, can accomplish incredible things. And so if if, if my response to the, the grace that has been shown to me, the justification that I, that I have received, my response should be that I don't present myself as, as an instrument of unrighteousness, a tool for unrighteousness, but I present myself to God as an instrument of righteousness, as an instrument of His right setting, of His right ordering. That, that, that is now my purpose in life. This is what we should all be to God, instruments of righteousness. And because when we are made righteous, when we are justified, we are given this new purpose. This new purpose to be wielded by God as a tool as he goes about his work of setting this world right. Of making this world rightly ordered again. And, And brethren, when we are saved, we're not just saved so that we can live with God forever. We are saved for that, but that, that is not the, necessarily the end goal, if you will, uh, of our salvation. We're not just saved so that we can, you know, chill out here on earth for the rest of our lives and, and take a, you know, first class ticket to Abraham's bosom when we die. That is not the, the end all be all of our salvation. We're saved for something deeper than this. We're saved for a purpose even greater than this. And, and, and this glorious purpose for which we are saved is to participate in God's plan of righteousness for this broken world. This world that I helped to break with my sin. He, he is, not only has he forgiven me of that, but he, he has justified me and he has recruited me into his efforts to fix this world that I helped to break, to be an instrument of his righteousness in an unrighteous world. So we, while we were actively tearing down his right order, he saved us. He saved me to this new glorious purpose to be used by him in his plan of righteousness. So as I, as I, as I strive to embody his character, then I'm going to be more properly bear his image to those around me. And Jesus actually talks about this back in Matthew chapter 5. Let's go back there for our, our final passage this morning. Back in Matthew 5, and I want to back up uh, a few verses to verse 13. Matthew 5 and verse 13. There Jesus says, You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has become tasteless, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on the lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. I'll, I'll, I'll su- submit to you this morning that what Jesus is talking about here 
is us being instruments of righteousness for God. When he, when he tells the, the his, his, the, the Jewish peasants who are sitting here listening to him, when he tells them, you are the salt of the earth, <clears throat> what are the, what are they hearing when they hear salt? Today, I, I normally use salt to season my food. That, that's, in, in my life at least, that has been the normal use of salt, is just to add some flavor to my food. That wasn't the normal use of salt for Jewish peasants, was it? They would have used salt to preserve things, to, to preserve meats, um, to, to keep things from rotting and from being, from being less than useless. That was, salt was a preservative. <clears throat> and so Jesus, when Jesus tells them, you are the salt of the earth, he's telling them, y'all are to act as preservatives. You are to, to act as preservatives in this world, um, as we are, and again, tying this to being instruments of righteousness, as God is using us to work in other people's lives, to, to bring them to Him, to save them, to preserve them in this dying world, this world that is, is decaying under the rot of sin. He says that we are the light of the world, compares us to a city set on a hill. And again, in, in, in today's day and age, we have street lights, we have lights on our cars, we have light, we have flashlights on our phones. We are generally never without light. But you think about their day, their day and age. You think about traveling by night throughout the hills of Judea. And, and it, it's dark and you're concerned about bandits, you're concerned about these things. And then up in the distance, you, you see the lights of a city. You see the light shining from, from the windows of the homes in, in a small city, and you're going to be trying to get to that place because that means security. That light means security. It means safety from the dark world that, that you're stumbling through. We are to be that light to those around us. We, we are to be that light. You, uh, the, he uses the comparison of, of, letting, of a, uh, lighting a lamp and not putting it under a basket, but on a lampstand so that it gives light to all in the house. And again, similar, similar imagery here. Of, of someone who is, or of a, of a, a, a dark house at night, and you think about that, again, no, no electricity or anything like that, you're stumbling around, you're stubbing your toe on things, but if someone lights a candle, well, you can see where you're going. You can see where you're walking. You can see that table that you're about to kick your shin on for the 50th time, and you can avoid it. That's what we are to be to the world around us. That is how, that is how God will use us as instruments of His righteousness, is to illuminate the, 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 the way to him to illuminate the dangers of this world to the people around us. And you just think, <clears throat> you think about the, the angry, the broken, the hurting people who I'm sure that you know personally in this city. People who don't have a hope. They haven't been saved. They, they don't have peace. They're stumbling around blind, you know, just beating themselves up in the dark. But they're looking for something. And it's our responsibility to help them find it. It's our responsibility to, to be lights in the world, to be salt that preserves people for the coming of our Lord and Savior. It's our responsibility to be instruments of righteousness for God in this world that we live in. And so that leads us to our concluding question this morning. Am I allowing God to use me as an instrument of righteousness? Or am I still presenting myself as an instrument of unrighteousness? Am I maybe still holding on to a righteousness that is more more akin to the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees than it is the true righteousness that God has called me to? Because the thing about being an instrument of righteousness is that it's a full-time job. That that instrument has exactly one purpose, and that is to to glorify God, to bear his image. That instrument can't be used for anything other than that. <clears throat> 
It takes all of who I am to be an instrument of God's righteousness. Because again, that was the problem with the scribes and the Pharisees, right? They would teach one thing to the people, and then they would go and they would do something completely different. My righteousness has to surpass that. That They refuse to let God's law mold them and shape them. My righteousness has to surpass that. So to be a proper instrument of righteousness, I have to first let God rightly order my heart. And at that point, everything about me will begin to change and will begin to fall into place. And he will begin to use me in his plan of righteousness for this world, which is just a, a, a glorious thought that each of us can be a part of his plan in some way. So are you letting God use you as an instrument of righteousness? Are you working to embody his character and therefore fill, therefore fulfill the role that you were created to fill? Because that's what righteousness is. It's being rightly ordered according to how God says I should be ordered. If, if you're not doing that in some way this morning, if you, if you have never started doing that, if you've never, um, had your relationship with him repaired, if you've never been baptized into water and raised up newness of life, as Paul talks about there in, in Romans chapter six as well, then you're not rightly ordered because we've all sinned. We all fall short of the glory of God, but we can all be justified through the one act, through the one man's act of righteousness. So if you need that justification, if you need to have your sins forgiven for the first time, then, then we will be overjoyed to baptize you this morning. If you've been baptized, but you, you, you need help, as we all do at times, if you need help as you are struggling and, and trying and striving to be an instrument of God's righteousness, but we all struggle with sin, we all struggle with various things, we love to encourage you. If, if there's anything that we can do this morning to help you uh, better be an instrument for God, then please let us know. You can let us know now as we stand and as we sing this song.